0: two mats that's the number two m-a-t-t-s and there's a link in the show notes
1: when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second
2: guess the ring at blue nile.com you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online choose your diamond and setting when you found the one
1: you'll get it delivered right to your door
0: Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, I'm Matt Kelly, founder of The New European. If you like The New European podcast, you're going to love The New European newspaper. Unique content from people who love being European as much as you do. A different take on current affairs, bringing insight to untold stories from within our continent and explaining how they shape our lives. And page after page of fabulous arts and culture coverage from across Europe. It's witty, entertaining, and when it drops through your letterbox each week, it's going to remind you that a strong pro-European community is alive and well in this country we love. It's on sale at newsagents every Thursday, but make sure you don't miss a copy by subscribing. We've got a special time limited offer just now. Go to thenewEuropean.co.uk forward slash subscribe, and you get the newspaper delivered every week, anywhere in the UK, for just £10 a month. And you also get full access to our e edition. You're going to love it, and you'll be supporting great journalism. Thank you, and enjoy the podcast. Hello Snowflakes and welcome to the New European
3: podcast, a British eye on European politics and culture from the people who bring you the New European newspaper. You can subscribe at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. For £10 a month, you get the printed and e-editions each week. My name is Steve Anglesey. Well, what a week. If we're going to spend £200 on a yacht to commemorate one of our royals, what are we going to spend to commemorate losing our Jersey royals as well? The answer appears to be we're going to spend a lot on war with France. War with France? For the first time since 1815, when, as all scholars of history and music know, at Waterloo, Napoleon did surrender. 1815, of course, also the year the Corn Laws were brought in to Britain, something that people were told would bring about cheaper prices and help British farmers. They actually ended up causing years of poverty and misery. Thank God we're all over uh, ridiculous ideas like that now. What did you think of the ending of Line of Duty? And can you think of another long-running drama that its fans assured us would turn out brilliantly but ended up just being a load of rubbish? Who's done more harm to Britain, do you think? The OCG or the ERG? Now, we all know the result of the Hartlepool by-election by now, but we don't yet know many of the other results from May the 6th, so we'll keep discussion of that till next week. But to get you in the mood, we asked listeners if there was an election on your favourite TV show, which characters would stand for which parties and who would win and why? Rob Van Can says, uh, this is a Simpsons one, Barney Gumble would defeat Mayor Quimby on a platform of free beer and unlimited opening hours of bars, brackets, burp. Richard McGinley says, we're at Star Trek and there's been controversy as Mr Spock is thrown out of the Conservative Party due to his inability to lie. Fortunately, his lack of personality finds him a place leading the Labour Party. Will Stanton says Father Dougal Maguire, from Father Ted, is Dougie Ross of the Scottish Tories, except Father Dougal is well-known and well-liked, whereas Dross is, well, a Scottish Tory. And we've got a cheers one here. Cliff Claven, Republican, defeats Dr Lilith Stern Crane, Democrat, with a promise to make Boston great again. Nothing like that would happen in real life, surely. Well, keep sending those thoughts to us via Twitter at The New European or on Facebook and Instagram. And now to entertain and inform you is the comedian, writer, European columnist, friend of the podcast, Mitch Ben. Mitch, hello. Hello, Steve. How's yourself? I am well. W- uh, Mitch, what are you stockpiling ahead of our impending war against the French? <laughs>
1: You know, I used to use war with France as a kind of absurd metaphor for, you know, the most extreme Brexit scenario possible. And I kept being told to sit down, you know. And now we are literally sending gunboats in the channel. Well, I'm sure it's making all the little Englanders get, you know, little, little little, twitchy patriotism boners at the thought of actually, you know. But this is where it was all headed. You know what I mean? This is where it was all headed. It's this, this... I, I I wish I could say that anything which has happened since the referendum has surprised me. It hasn't. It, um, I really, and that's not me being smug. That's me being, you know, wretchedly disappointed. I would so, you know, this thing of a. I just want to prove you right. No, please. I would love to be proved wrong, just once, just once. Please prove me wrong in anything I've been saying for the past five years. Just please prove me wrong once. hasn't
3: happened yet it's not happening so far it does it does does remind me of that um of that scene in broadcast news when um when when the the sort of the snarky older producer says to holly hunter it must be it must be terrible being right
1: all the time and she says no it's awful and yeah that is kind of how how i feel about it yeah yeah absolutely i mean i actually thought about that as a as a fringe show title once, I hate being right all the time, but I thought people aren't going to spot the Jurassic Park reference and think it's just me, you know, blowing smoke up my own ass. But no, it's 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 been, it's, yeah, I mean, but you do wonder, don't you, just how impermeable some people's self-righteousness can be. I mean, how much of what we were told wasn't going to happen has to happen? And how many of the things that we said were going to happen have to happen and how many of the things that the brexit side said were going to happen have to not happen before somebody on that side thinks decides maybe they were wrong i think you know what i mean it's it's uh, uh, what uh, at what point do you actually go you know what you guys were right Yes, yeah, this I think this was a, a terrible, way to terrible idea. Unfortunately, yeah, it's extraordinary. But I, I'm 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 trying to work out what the rationalisation must be now. I mean, <clears throat> this, this, you know at various stages of this hideous process, there've been fairly obvious rationalisations they could cling to, but I genuinely do not know what it is now. I mean, it was it was it was meant to be all about protecting the fisheries for so damn long, and then we turned out they were going further under the bus than anybody
3: it's extraordinary isn't it absolutely extraordinary yes and and it's come as a complete surprise to 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 people that that france is supplying most of jersey's electricity yeah i've got i've got they're a lot nearer france yeah they're a lot nearer
1: france (laughs) yes they are. (laughs) I i mean people need to look on a map you know like jersey and guernsey are a lot you know it is kind of odd that they are sort of British territory because they are a lot nearer France than they are us you know it is. also I don't think I don't think Jersey and Guernsey feel any particular sort of debt of gratitude to Britain because the last time we came out the while we abandoned them you know <laughs> we let the Germans take over we, because you know, it was too, it was too much hassle to try and defend them, and certainly way too much hassle to try and bring them back. It was going to leave ourselves vulnerable. So, yeah, I mean they're the only bits of they the only bits of British territory that the Nazis actually occupied, and they occupied That's right the enemy Church. at the door
3: as well. Of course, that was, absolutely uh, yeah
1: yeah what a yeah. show.
3: Um, yeah. talking, talking <laughs> of TV shows, yeah, um, Line of Duty you you've, you've talked about in your. New uh, European column over the last couple of weeks. What did you? It's think- kind of unavoidable, isn't it? Well, it is. What did you think of the uh, of the final episode? And and did you spot the 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 extremely subtle hidden messaging, which Jed Mercurio <laughs> seems to have been e- eager to get across during this
1: series? Oh yeah, well, it's it's I mean, you know, never. <laughs> no. Jed is, you know, Jed Mercurio is not often accused of subtlety. Let's face it. I mean, it's like, I mean, the thing is, his shows are really good, but they are incredibly manipulative. You know, they, they are—they're an exercise in audience manipulation as much as they're an exercise in storytelling. Um, and and you know, these, these vicious cliffhangers that he works in every forty-five minutes or so, and 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 yeah, and, and 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 deluging the whole thing in acronyms so it all sounds like an incredibly well-researched police procedural, but it actually is. It, you know it may well all be pulled entirely out of his ass in terms of <laughs> how 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 you know police anti-corruption unit works you know but um but it it sort of feels kind of authentic even if the whole thing operates in this kind of you know game of thrones set in a nick kind of level you know um but no you're right the messaging this season has been fairly on the nose and and we, we had a reference just a an oblique reference a few episodes ago to, you know, a barefaced faced liar promoted to the highest office in the land. And I don't know whether that was actually meant to be about boys, so it's been a bit but but in the meantime you've you've got this like I said I said in the column this week, this reveal that this this uh you know the the, the guy at the center of the, the network of police corruption was not the the fiendish criminal mastermind we've all been waiting for, but it's just this bumbling chancer is just making it all up as he goes along and has got away with being hideously corrupt for his entire career because everybody thinks he's too incompetent to get it together. And that's, you know, a fairly obvious allusion there being right. made, I think, to our own dear leader. And, no, I, think I thought the uh, Yeah, I mean, I don't know. The weird thing is, it seems to make a lot of people very angry. I actually thought this season was better than last season. I thought last season kind of jumped the shark a bit um right. last season to me felt like it was written by somebody else taking the piss out of it <laughs> you know what i mean it kind of felt like a parody of line of duty written by somebody else this season i thought was better than last season but i can see why i mean i think it's if, if that were the end as in because i'm, I'm fairly sure that the plan is to bring it back for one last series hmm. uh, and then and then wrap it all up um but if that were the end, as in they weren't going to bring it back, then I think that might be regarded as a bit of a downer. But I think there is more to come. But having said that, I mean, given how utterly grovellingly compliant the BBC are with everything that the government wants at the moment, I'm, A, kind of surprised that he got that plot past them. And, B, I'm wondering what kind of a season seven they're going to let him do. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean... I mean We've got a reader's letter in this week
3: about this, which is saying Go well, on. surely there, there will be some kind of pushback against Jed Mercurio, and maybe we won't get a, a new series because of that. I mean, it's. It was, it was fairly blatant, wasn't it? I was surprised oh, yeah. that H didn't turn out to be somebody called Doris Bonson or Doris <laughs> Benson or something like that. It's a cleaning, yeah, yeah. It's a cleaning woman. Or, um, but do you, I mean, is that really possible? Are, re, are people really pitching stuff to the BBC right now and being told that it's too left-wing or it's not balanced enough?
1: Uh, I don't know because I don't really have anything to do with the BBC anymore. Uh, I do know that they kicked the Daily Match off, Yes. Um, and a lot of people are wondering whether that was entirely coincidental. I also do know that the people who are being put into their jobs at the top end of the BBC are fairly strong affiliations with the Conservative Party, like Robbie Gibb. You know, I, I do know that that's who is running the BBC now. Um, and but, but even before that, there was, I remember Nish Kumar actually said something along the same lines when the Daily Mash got cancelled. There is often this feeling that. The BBC are desperately trying to placate people who cannot be placated because their opposition to the BBC is institutional. It's not circumstantial. It's mm. not. Um, it's not situational. It's. It's. It, they, they don't object to anything that the BBC. They, well, they do object to the things that the BBC does, but they principally object to what the BBC is, or rather, they object to what the BBC isn't, which is for sale. And that's what... No, seriously, I'm absolutely serious. This is why I wrote that song, Proud of the BBC, 10 years ago, because I felt that the BBC wasn't fighting its own corner, because the BBC can't really fight its own corner because it's got that central disadvantage that it is, you know kind of publicly, fun- well it is publicly funded, it's not state funded, it's publicly funded so whenever anybody you know, complains about the BBC the BBC kind of curls up a into a bit of a ball rather than tells it to mind their own bloody business, because they can always turn around and say, it is my bloody business, I pay for it everybody else, blah, 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 blah. You know, and that is kind of a chink in the BBC's arm means it can never really fight its corner properly um, yeah. but it is worth bearing in mind and I've been making this point for years you know, most of the opposition of the BBC, the criticism of the BBC that one reads in the rest of the media is absolutely in bad faith uh, because it's coming from outlets owned by people who want the BBC to go away or who want it you know, broken up and sold off for parts because there is nothing more offensive to you know, the Murdochs and Barclay brothers of the world um, that there is a big chunk of the British media sphere which they can't buy.
3: Yes, that's it's as simple right. as that.
1: They can't buy it. You can't buy the BBC. You can buy up, you can buy each other's companies. You know, you can't buy the BBC. It's like pretty much the dominant player in the British media, and it's not for sale. And this really offends a certain You know, the, I've always said, you know, the modern conservative divides the world into two categories: stuff I can make money out of, and stuff I cannot make money out of, and must therefore destroy and replace with something I can make money out of. Um so, so yeah. the bbc falls very much in that second column so there is this feeling and i got that when i was working there at the time and certainly so getting it looking out in the outside that the bbc is constantly trying to placate the school bully and the school bully can't be placated because at the end of the the school bully wants to see you suffer <laughs> you know he has no gender above and beyond that he just wants you to cry yeah. you know and so you can't you know, it doesn't matter how much you give him your lunch money, how many you give him your sweeties, or you know, how much you do his own work, he doesn't actually want anything from you other than your pain you know uh and it's the same with the bbc and particularly conservative i mean labor governments get a bit annoyed that the bbc turns out not to be this hotbed of progressivism that they you know that they all thought it was under the tories and doesn't just become the you know but governments of all snaps get annoyed that the bbc is not the national mouthpiece of the government you know they, they always they're, they're always disappointed to discover that the bbc doesn't play ball when they get in but it's particularly you know with, with the modern conservative party it's it's a particularly uh, it's an anathema as far as they're concerned they think the whole world should be for sale to the highest bidder and when something isn't they regard it as an anathema yes, this, um, is this is very you know, you know I and mean, that's one of the things that was fueling Brexit they think that you know this is this is literally what Jacob Rees-Mogg's dad's book was about you know the entire world should be available to the highest bidder these sovereign individuals Quite right. So you know that, yeah. that, that, that states and state organisations should wind their neck in and just let the great and good get on with it, you know. And by a curious coincidence, of course, everybody who thinks that actually tends to belong to the great and good, you know. Um, people <laughs> people tend people tend not to try to you know, regulate themselves out of existence. But anyway, yeah.
3: Um, we're recording this before we know the results of the Hartley by election, but it,
1: yeah, I think, I think we all know that Labour are going to lose it. Keir probably, not I've not really been about. paying attention. I mean, yeah, it's probably.
3: I mean, you know, I think I think Sadiq Khan is going to be okay. I think the Labour yeah. in Scotland have run a fairly good campaign by all accounts, but there is mm-hmm. going to be more pressure on Keir Starmer. A- apart from the people who think that everything Keir Starmer does is terrible because he's not got a white beard and lives in Islington, um, yeah i mean there's there's a lot of anecdotal stuff about people people say he's too when you have focus groups people say, oh he's too stiff, he's just a boring bloke in a in a suit. he's not real enough. he doesn't speak to me um What do you think he should do i mean the the people like Neil Kinnock and Ed Miliband have tried having comedians writing their jokes how does how does uh-huh. Starmer loosen up he's He tried going to the pub and that didn't end well.
1: I, yeah, I know. Uh, I don't think Keir Starmer's image is the problem. I think just you know, I don't think he, I, I think there's a way of turning boring to his advantage, much as Joe Biden did um, when you know interesting is plunging you into chaos when you, you're being run by a character, when you're being run by you know this this mm. this, this, this colorful eccentric, and your country's spiraling out of control. I think, all right, I mean, what he fundamentally needs to do is something we've discussed, I think, on at least one previous occasion Have been on this. What he needs to be doing is setting up an electoral pact with all the other progressive parties. Yes. That's what he actually needs to be doing. As regards his image management, I, don't th- I think he should be doubling down on the boring and methodical bit. Um, the trouble is just at the moment the conservatives have got this vaccine bounce which is they which they absolutely don 't bloody deserve, but they 've got it um and there 's kind of there's there 's kind of an an inevitable wave of optimism coming in on the back of the vaccinations which i say the government really does not deserve to benefit from, but they inevitably they will are. um much as you know um well, there's all kinds of things that you know provide little sort of bits of patriotic uplift that the Tories then sail in on. Um, so, oh, I don't know. My, but the two things, but the other thing, Starman needs to do is he needs to be looking a bit more proactive. He needs because at the moment we are, we are assured that he is playing the long game. But the trouble is, from the outside, playing the long game and doing absolutely f- all are pretty much indistinguishable. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? From our point of view, you know, you know, biding your time and waiting for the moment to strike, and sitting around with your thumb up your ass, are almost look almost identical to everybody else. And one could be forgiven for thinking that the Labour Party is there, but one, it one, one hopes it isn't. But one could be forgiven for thinking. I think the trouble, the trouble that he's got. I think one well, of the trouble that he's got is that half his party hates him. Yes. Well, actually, no, not half, but about a, 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 a very vocal third of his party hates him because, as you point out, you know, th- there was a cult of personality took over the Labour Party and cults of personality don't go away uh, and can't really be reasoned with. Um, but, you know, the cult of personality, you know, and... and on the one hand, is it, you know, just what politicians always say, that you know, well, you buried me down such a big hole, I still haven't had time to dig my way out of it. I think there's an element of that. Hmm. Um, you know, there is the hashtag Corbyn held Hartlepool, but, you know, he did also lead the party to their worst electoral result in 80 years, you know. So Hartlepool was, I don't know how indicative or another, yeah you know, but I don't. I don't know. It's it's difficult. There, there doesn't really the, the, Labour aren't really making a positive case at the moment.
3: No, um, I don't we're really not, know we're not the Tories. What they're for. At the we're moment. not
1: the Tories, and we're not Corbyn either. Is not enough.
3: Yeah. Um,
1: they're they're not making a positive case at the moment. One wonders if they're thinking, you know, if their if their theory is, well, the time is not yet right to make a positive case. I think the time has always got to be right to make some sort of positive case, even doesn't necessarily have to be your closing argument. It doesn't have to be the sort of the I don't know the killer blow that you anticipate delivering before the next election. Because the other thing we've learned, of course, is you never know when the next election's coming. Well, you just. You know, we, we, we've had, how I many have we had? Like three in the last five years. So it's, it's, we don't know when the next election's coming. We would assume that, well, here's the thing. The Tories are not going to get rid of Boris while they think he's going to win in the next election. It's as simple as that. Doesn't matter what he does. Doesn't matter what he gets caught doing. Doesn't matter how far in the till his fingers are. It doesn't matter whose wife he's sticking it to. It doesn't matter any of that. The, the Tories will not abandon him while they think he's going to win him an election because at the end of the day, they just want to keep their jobs and everything else is well, it's, it's not even a secondary consideration. It's not a consideration at all, let's face it. The only thing they're interested in is staying on the gravy train and staying in power. And the minute it looks like Boris might be imperiling that, they will be out in his ass. The minute, the minute it looks like they think Boris might actually be an electoral liability, he's out in his ass. At the moment, he's not, so he's safe. But you never know. You never know. You I mean, never know. We know
3: it's got to be in the next. I mean, it's less now, isn't it? It's it's, it's got to be in the next three years because of the time, uh, because of the time that they um, that, that, that they held it. I think it's. I think it might be the se- before the second of May, um, in three years' time, um, something like that. Yeah. How have you enjoyed Lawrence Fox's campaign to become mayor of London? I mean, we don't know whether he's
1: won or not, but. Spoiler! I'm going to go on a limb here and say, he hasn't? Um, yeah. I heard him. Dis- somebody on Twitter described him as the waitress Tommy Robinson, which is just <laughs> magnificent. You know, um I have been paying as little attention to it as possible because, at the end of the day, attention is all he wants, and I'm yeah. not giving him that. So I muted him on Twitter, and I, I, I you know, I'm no, I'm, I'm not, I'm not giving him the attention. Quite frankly, I mean, this, but this is, you know, this seems to be befalling a lot of people in the entertainment business right now. Um, There's a particular radio host at the moment who's become the, you know, the sort of the face of the anti-mask campaign, who is an old friend of mine from university since 30 years ago. Oh, no. And who I've always known to be a very sort of sensible and intelligent guy. And I guess it's possible he believes everything he's coming out with. Um, I'm not sure which I would find more disappointing the yeah. thought that maybe he actually believes everything he's coming out with right now, or whether he's just doing it for the caching. One suspects the ka-ching, um, which would be even more despicable than him actually becoming a swivel-like conspiracy theorist. But this seems to be befalling. I think people in the entertainment industry are basically spying a gap in the market. I think they're thinking that there's, you know, in this sort of post-Brexit era, that there is a substantial proportion of the public, and they're probably right about this, who have had it with progress and who are suspicious of all kind of artistic types as being a bunch of, you know, lefty snowflakes Hmm. and genuinely regard somebody coming out with the kind of crap that Lawrence Fox has been coming out with as a breath of fresh air, rather than dissent in the jingoistic bullshit that it actually is. Um, and I think people are, they're, they're spying a gap in the market. You know, there's been a few comedians who've suddenly come over all, you know, suddenly come over all QAnon, for want of a better yeah. word, because there's, there's, there's and, and one detects a degree of abject cynicism here, because at the end of the day, What do you want to be? Do you want to be one of a couple of hundred lefty snowflake comedians or do you want to be one of a dozen QAnon comedians, you know, and go after? And it's like, well, if that's what you want to do. But unfortunately, some of us still remember that the things you say and the things you do have consequences above and beyond you getting paid. Yeah. Um. And I was having this conversation on, on Twitter actually with another comedy friend of mine, Rufus Hound. About say, what would it take? What would be your limit? You know, what would? How much money could they offer you for you to start turning up on TV and radio, telling people to rip their masks off? Where? Where? Where's? Where, you know, what's? And I honestly don't think there is because a, because it would make a complete nonsense of everything else I'm trying to do. <laughs> you know um whatever you're getting paid for being on commercial speech radio i don't know if it's enough to pay your mortgage but anyway maybe it is uh, my experience of being on radio is it really doesn't pay that well and so you couldn't really do it to the exclusion of everything else but my main feeling about it is is it's it's just i can't completely blind myself to the consequences of my own actions to that degree and, and I genuinely, and, and this is not, you know, this is not me sort of trumpeting my own virtue. It's just saying that I, if, if I knew on any level that the things I was doing were actually causing that much damage, then, you know, of course, the minute I say that, I'll have all the to say, you sang a song about Jeremy Corbyn being useless in two yeah. years ago. Yes, and that's why he lost. Because <laughs> one fat comic on YouTube sang a song about him being rubbish, and that's why he lost. Nothing to do with alienating the whole of the working class. He just—that's why he lost. Anyway, so I'm just sorry. I'm just anticipating that reaction, but no, I don't imagine it will. Beginning. It will, it will happen. They're, they're going to be very busy yeah. on Twitter over this weekend. I think. Oh yeah, they're, they're going to they're have enough to begin. We, we'll, we'll leave them to get on with it. They're going to have enough to keep them busy. It's um, funny though. They're the, ones, go, they're the ones who come after you the hardest. They're the ones who come are? after you the hardest. So, because I mean, you know, I've I've spent the last few years pissing off people on all points of the uh, political spectrum, and the ones who come after you the hardest are the copitologists. They really are. They're the ones who get the nastiest. way it, nastier yeah. than the way nastier than the Brexiters. They, um, you know, it's it's weird.
3: It is. Before I let you go, you've had a big response yes. to, to this on social media already. I don't know if you've seen it today, but you, you've oh, written hello. about the new royal yacht this week. Is it a good oh,
1: yes. idea or a bad idea? It's a bad idea. <laughs> That was Mitch ben. what else what else what else should we talk about <laughs> it's a bad idea I mean at the end of the day look I mean the royal family is a howling anachronism anyway I am not I've always been completely agnostic as regards to the royals I am neither string the buggers up nor god bless her majesty you know what I mean um I'm pretty agnostic I think as howling anachronisms go it's a relatively benign one and there are occasions when it's actually been a useful kind of psychological barrier to a more megalomaniac com- uh, p- politician. Put it this way. It was always quite nice that back in the 80s, there was somebody that Thatcher still had to curtsy to. You know? <laughs> that was quite nice. There was still somebody that she had to, you know, bow and scrape to. That was quite nice. Um, but, oh, God Elphus, I mean, it's... it's You know, re- re- read. The- I was going to say read the room, guys, but then again, to what extent am I even in the bloody room? It could well be that, you know, for, for a lot of people in this country that in the middle of a financial meltdown, shelling out 200 million quid on a new boat for the Queen is exactly what they do think we should be spending our money on. But my main feeling, and I said this in the article, is, is you know, my, my first thought was, oh, OK, so who is it in the cabinet whose brother-in-law builds boats? <laughs> and then I thought, no, it won't even be that. It'll be mean, somebody in the cabinet's brother-in-law has never built a boat in his life, but is about to get paid 200 million quid to build one anyway.
3: Yeah, he quite, um, I quite fancy this. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> incredible. Incredible. Well, oh, if only
1: it were incredible, Steve, if only it were incredible, regrettably it gets more credible by the day.
3: I know. I know. That's just
1: where we're living right now, man. It
3: is. But if they knock it up quickly enough, we can, obviously we can sail, sail it to, in our invasion fleet for, to Calais. <laughs> so so that is yes. all, that is all good. Swings and roundabouts. Mitch, Ben, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you sure. steve and we will speak again soon we will cheers buddy Bye-bye. and now gail walker the belfast telegraphs editor at large she's joining us at what should be a time of celebration in northern ireland but of course is once again a time of political and social turmoil and she's written about all of this in this week's new european gail hello
2: hello steve
3: Thanks for joining us. We're we're now past the the hundredth anniversary of the creation of Northern Ireland um, on May the third. Although I, I think some people are saying that June the twenty first is equally significant. How would have the these anniversaries have been marked without the pandemic, and, and what's actually happened instead?
2: Well, I think without the pandemic, there would have been um, a lot of street celebrations, a lot of public events and civic events organised. Um, in reality, we ended up with actually very little um, evidence that it was, in fact, the date centenary, I suppose, on, on Bank Holiday Monday, which is mm. just passed.
3: Yes. It's, and, and what would have, what would it have been like, do you think,
2: Um, Well, I think it would have been um, probably very much a celebration for unionism um, that already been quite a standoff from nationalism in terms of getting involved in in any events that were planned. Um, But I think uh, there would have been public spectacle. We could have expected to have seen marches. We could have expected to have seen um, a lot of public events that would have that would have um, captured celebration and, and, and spirit of the, the moment.
3: Now, of course, we're in election mode here, um, but over there you're now occupied with the race to replace Arlene Foster as leader of the, the DUP. How much of what happened to Arlene Foster is, is down to the faith that she put in her fabulous friend Boris Johnson? And what are the other the other factors? Because it's not just all about that, is it?
2: It's not. I mean, I think um, obviously um, the DUP feel that they have been betrayed by Boris Johnston and indeed he did, uh, as quite famously now, turn up in Northern Ireland. Uh, He assured uh, Mrs Foster that there would be no border in the irish sea and then obviously with the um brexit deal and the northern ireland protocol we ended up with um a partial sea border in the irish sea so i think it's fair to say that 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 left her in an almost impossible place um her leadership probably had been under threat within the party for some time there were a lot of questions being asked about the negotiating style and and how brexit had been handled Um, i think though in a sense um when mrs foster was finally removed as party leader there is a sense that she has been scapegoated Mm. Um, obviously she has taken the rap and that is what we would expect a leader to do that that's what tends to happen but um
3: not over here
2: (laughs) yeah (laughs) no not over there perhaps but but we would have expected that to have happened, and I think um, instead a lot of the people who were probably part of those deals and part of those considerations and working on strategy with her um, have decided to, to blame Arlene for the, the um, crisis that unionism now finds itself in.
3: I mean, the, the DUP doesn't normally do leadership elections, is that right?
2: That's right. This this is a particularly fascinating aspect of this um, leadership election. The DEP is around 50 years old, and it has never had a a leadership election before. Um, Its leaders tend to be crowned. Its first leader was its founder, the Reverend Ian Paisley. He was then followed by Peter Robinson, who then passed on the crown, if you like, to Arlene Foster. She was very much his choice as next leader. So, this this is a, a unique uh situation that the party now finds itself in where it has two contenders vying for the top job. And it's I mean, it's fair to say that um the centenary celebrations as as they amounted to um have been completely overshadowed by, by what's happening within the DEP.
3: Now talk us through the contenders to replace arlene foster edwin poots is um is particularly interesting, i think
2: yes edwin edwin is very interesting and in fact edwin would have been i think it's fair to say one of the prime movers in the ousting of arlene foster um he he's he's been a critic for some time probably um taking pot shots um during the pandemic and and uh kind of just letting it be known that uh he wasn't on board anymore. Um, he's recovering from a cancer operation. He's 58 years old, and he would be very much in line with. Um, well, I was going to say the the right the kind of the, the right wing of the DUP. But then some people might find it hard to believe that the DUP has anything other than a right <laughs> wing. But but it does. Um, it, it probably has gradations along all of that. Um, Edwin. Uh his father, his late father was a founding member of the party. And he would be very much, I think, wishing to take the party back in that direction, um, where it would sit much more with with what core DUP um members would expect it to. He's he's a free Presbyterian, like the founder of the party, the Reverend Ian Paisley, and um he, he holds some pretty strong religious views. You've probably read that he's a creationist. He rejects evolution and would contend that the earth is no older than 6,000 years old. Um, those would be his honestly held, I suppose, religious views. Um, and whether or not that should impinge on his uh, political life is, is, I suppose, a debate. But, but it is, uh, it is uh, certainly a talking point.
3: Absolutely. What does he, what's his position on dinosaurs? It's very rare that in a leadership election, you you can say, what's your position on dinosaurs? Does he, how does he explain away the dinosaur thing?
2: I'm not quite sure how he would explain that away, Steve. I mean, um, some might say he wouldn't be unfamiliar with a few dinosaurs in the (laughs) environments in which he moves. But um, yeah, certainly um, I think, um, he if he were to be elected leader, he could expect a great deal of inquisition on those matters, because people would be very curious. Indeed, interestingly, we're not getting much of a chance to talk to him or indeed the uh, rival, uh, his rival, Sir Geoffrey Donaldson, because the party has slapped a gagging order on both of the contenders ahead of the election next week. So, neither of them are expected to give any interviews uh, to the media. Wow, and that's
3: extraordinary.
2: It is extraordinary. And, and what's extraordinary, I think, will be if, um, if both of them comply with that. Because one of the key things for, for Edwin's um, pitch, I think, is that he wants to completely reform and, and restructure the party. And he would be extremely unhappy, uncomfortable with the direction in which Arlene Foster has taken the party um and I suppose um as I said she was uh she was Peter Robinson's choice for the next leadership and and Peter Robinson was was really in the process of reforming the party and trying to kind of I suppose maximize its reach across unionism and I think that Edwin would very much want to to regroup the party take it back to its core focus its core values as he would see them and the idea then that he would comply at this point with a party edict coming from a party which he doesn't particularly think is be is functioning well at the moment is quite extraordinary
3: yes is that does that embrace sort of social conservatism as well as the you know ulster says no type of Rigid unionism that we were used to in the past,
2: yeah, I think it would I mean I think he um certainly he has formed in the past where he um, in a previous ministerial post as health minister um, tried to prevent gay men from being able to give blood uh, over HIV concerns um and I think he would be very much wanting to uh, those core values. They would be, um, you know, opposed to gay rights issues. Um, they would take a strong view on abortion and reproductive rights as well. Um, now he hasn't particularly said what he intends to do in any of those matters, but but certainly I, I can imagine that his his known views would be part of uh, his appeal to uh, a swathe of of DUP uh, supporters.
3: And this is the crossroads that you you write about, isn't it? That the DUP are finding them, themselves within. So Jeffrey Donaldson is is a more moderate voice then, but he's he's not liked, is he, by some traditional DUP members? What, why is that?
2: Well, Jeffrey, I think um, would be seen very much uh, falling into that kind of. Um, line that's that's coming from Peter Robinson um Mm. he would be seen to be more uh I suppose of a modernist he would be more on the center ground of the party um he's been MP for Ligon Valley for a number of years now and he heads up the Westminster team for the DUP but I think um some some in the party might feel that he's He's too uh, modern, he, he might be slightly more malleable on social issues. Um, he, he probably is more likely to try to take the party in the direction of, of reaching out to unionism in a much broader way. Um, interestingly, when he launched his, his pitch for the leadership on Monday, he used a phrase called the politics of persuasion which would be where many people would see that uh, unionism, that's where it really needs to be right now.
3: Yes, it's, uh, it's a, a a kind of a balancing act, isn't it?
2: Mm-hmm. What, what
3: do you, What, as much as you can generalise about this, do you think the, the mood is among unionists now, after what we've seen over the last few weeks? You, you write in, you know, very convincingly this week's newspaper about them feeling disenfranchised and, and possibly increasingly fearful of a unification vote
2: Well I think I think we have to keep um, calls for a border poll and a, a unity referendum in perspective the, these things do come along periodically yes. and and they do spook unionists there's no doubt about that um, and there are a number of factors that play into that. Obviously we have we've talked about brexit. And the irish sea border and and that has i think presented unionism with a with a very real crisis um, I think that it 's kind of almost existential for unionism and and they've they 've revisited a lot of things in the past and they they look for example at the Good Friday agreement and nationalists obviously uh, during the brexit negotiations argue that they could not be a a border, a north-south border, because that would be in breach of the the spirit and the rule of the agreement. Unionists would now say that they are having to basically suck up an Irish sea border, an east-west border, and that that contravenes the Belfast Agreement as well. Um, I think uh, there are other factors at play as well. I mean, um, I think one of the big uh, rationale for a unity poll from nationalism has been, if you like, this, this sort of ticking clock scenario, Yes. where they see that uh, biological nationalism, if you like, is about to win, that it's about to tip over, and there will be more people who are, uh, and it's a rather crude term, but more, more people who are born uh, nationalists, if you like, and therefore 50 plus one times running out Um if you were to think of another metaphor, you would say, you know, unionism is sitting looking at an egg timer and and feels that that the very ground beneath it is shifting. Um, but but things are always much more more complicated and much more nuanced than that, certainly in Northern Ireland. And and I think that um, the smart money in unionism isn't and shouldn't really be about seeing a border poll as an imminent threat but it should really be seen it as a, a refocusing for building consent and, and i suppose that's what sir geoffrey was talking about when he talked about the politics of persuasion because i think it's it's perfectly um, it's perfectly reasonable and it's perfectly logical that you can be for example born a nationalist and you can even aspire to nationalism uh, and, and that can be your ideology, but but for many other reasons, you might say, "Do you know what? I, I think I'm I'm quite happy with the union as it is." Um, and and this, so there are so many other factors that will come into play when people decide if there were to be a unity poll, how they would vote. And and those are really, I suppose, you might say, the things that matter most to most people. It's it's about your well being, it's about your health service. It's about your economic opportunities. It's about stability for your family. All of those things, you know, would make people, I think, very thoughtful about how they how they might vote. Um, if there were to be such a poll, um, you might say that if unionism was smart, it would be saying, "Well, you know, um, you talk about a unity poll, but but being part of the UK has has uh, seen us benefit from its." very efficient COVID 19 vaccine rollout. Um, you might say that, well, you know, you, you might aspire to being um in a united Ireland where you might say you would earn more money or the wages mm-hmm. are, are higher. But then here you benefit from free health care. Um cost of living is fairly competitive. And you know, Steve, I think even more than that, um when I say people will think about, about it, I think many people would think profoundly if they were voting in a border poll because Northern Ireland is around 22 years out of the, the Good Friday Agreement. Um, it still has a long way to go. We have today legacy back in the news. Um, I mean, there there are many unresolved issues here. Um, people, people still occasionally get shot. We have not... Um, We have not got rid of paramilitaries. Um, And I think there's a lot to be said for the status quo. And and people also put a lot of value on neighborliness, how they would get on with each other. Um, Would would voting a certain way cause a great deal of unrest? Mm. What, What do they want to bequeath to their children, to the next generation? Those are all the questions. And that's where the focus for unionism really should be now. And and I think that that is uh, certainly one of the reasons why this leadership contest is fascinating and and in many ways, I would say crucial to the future of unionism and to the future of the union.
3: It is absolutely, as you say, crucial. And and it's, you know, it's something that we will uh, be watching very closely um, at the new european uh on this podcast and, and hopefully with you again gail when when do we when do we know the results and and who is who do we think is the favorite so far is it is it possible to to know who the favorite is
2: it seems to be almost neck and neck according to sources i mean the um the electoral college is made up of 28 mls and eight mps a lot of scrutiny is going on into trying to sort of work out um how those camps are dividing out it seems to be more or less neck and neck there's a kind of interesting facet where one of those mlas uh jim wells who didn't have the party whip could even find himself in the position of kingmaker should it continue to be very very tight Um, the secret ballot takes place next friday and we should know the results soon after that
3: Well, we will be watching very, very closely. Gail Walker, fantastic to to hear from you. Uh, You can read Gail's piece in the New European in uh, in this edition, and I'm sure there will be many more to follow. Thanks so much, Gail.
2: Thank you, Steve.
3: And finally on the New European podcast, it's the Hall of Shame. Our new home for rubbish ministers, political blather, things that just annoy me. Generally, and one of them is Dominic Raab, because according to Michel Barnier's new book, we now know exactly what happened when Britain threatened the EU with no deal. Michel Barnier writes that Raab told him to accept his view on a special customs arrangement with the UK. Otherwise, there would be no deal. And Barnier writes, my heart skipped a beat. And then he says he told Raab that if that was the case, I and mean, I'm quoting here, negotiations can stop right away. And I will prepare myself in the next few days to inform the European Parliament and the member states. We will note that the negotiations failed on Brexit itself. And then what does Rob do? He suddenly retracts. He says he doesn't want that out of after all. He says he realises that he went too far. Yes, brave Sir Dominic ran away. Remember all that guff that they were spouting about no deal being better than a bad deal? Well, now we've got a rotten deal. You can see that everywhere, can't you? You can see it. Norway, you can see what's happening in Jersey right now. We've got a rotten deal because they knew that no deal would have been even worse. What a bunch of liars and chances this rotten lot really are. David Amos is in the uh, Hall of Shame and clues in the surname. It really is a mess for the Tory South and West MP. A quote from him appeared on Conservative local election leaflets. It said people should vote for the Tory Chris Walker because government ministers quoting here, are reluctant to go that extra mile for an opposition-controlled local council. Now, that's obviously a very serious admission to make. The government is supposed to deliver for everyone, regardless of who they voted for, regardless of who runs the the, the council, even though we know the so-called levelling up money is disproportionately going to places that, surprise, surprise, voted predominantly Tory. A spokesman for David Amos's office said, David is both shocked and horrified. The quote is absolutely not from him. The person who made up the quote never spoke to Sir David about it or asked his permission to use it. It most certainly does not reflect his views. It's interesting then, isn't it, that Andrew Mooring, who is um, Mr Walker's agent, said, David Amos didn't say those words, but it's been his sentiment over the years. Next time I'll give him more visibility before it's published. That's a Tory agent there saying that it most certainly does reflect David Amos's views um, that a Tory government won't look favourably on a non Tory control council. So which one of them is lying? Alack, it's Anne Widdicombe Corner. Yes, it's that time of the week when I pick over Anne Widdicombe's quite amazing column in the Daily Express. And this week Anne has important shopping news. This week, she writes, I handed back for the third time a packet of Chinese leaf lettuce to the Sainsbury's delivery driver. The wretched shop keeps sending it to me when it runs out of Pak Choi, despite my leaving caustic comments on its website about the difference between cabbage and lettuce. Now I have a bad, uh, bright idea. If it happens again, I shall tell Sainsbury's it is racist because it implies the Chinese cannot tell their lettuce from their cabbage or that all Chinese food is the same. Well, it's certainly an idea, Anne. Whether it's a bright idea or not, I think is very much open to question. One mi- more bit from Anne, and of course she's written about Line of Duty this week. Anne says, I did not watch Line of Duty. But of course, that does not stop Anne from having big opinions about Line of Duty. Here she goes again. For me, the rot set in 40 years ago when the newspapers screamed, Who shot J.R.? It was the start of um, fictional things being covered as if they were fact. From all the acres of newsprint, you'd think H was as real as Kim Philby. Harumph and egad. Yes, she really did write that. Harumph and egad. So henceforth, we're going to have to start this section of the podcast with the words, alack, harumph and egad. But head of the Hall of Shame this week, is Nadine Doris? I know she's been in before, but the health minister, and I have to pinch myself when I hear that too, it's really happening in this bizarre world of ours though. She tweeted this about the Hartlepool by-election. Boris Johnson has delivered Brexit trade deals and jobs for Hartlepool, along with a free port and 180,000 well-paid jobs. And the only problem with that, which sounds great, is that Hartlepool has a population of 92,000 people. 92,000 people in Hartlepool and 180,000 new well-paid jobs created. Plenty of babies there with second jobs, you would have thought. Well, that was the new European podcast with Steve Anglesey. Please remember to rate and review this podcast on your podcatcher of choice. Positive reviews really do mean a lot to us. Thank you to all my guests. You can subscribe to the New European at the newEuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. For ten pounds a month, you get the printed and e-editions each week. You can join our Facebook Readers group and you can follow me on Twitter at Sanglesey, S-A-N-G-L-E-S E-Y, and follow the New European on Twitter at the New European. Mr. Campbell, play your bagpipes.
1: Here you go. <laughs>